Welcome to the Beyond Your Money podcast with Mike Dukovich, financial advisor and retirement income certified professional with RBC Wealth Management. Join us as we share the tools and insight that can help you take control of your money and your life. Because we believe life's greatest returns are realized when you invest beyond your money. And welcome to the Beyond Your Money podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Mike Dukovich. I'm a financial advisor, a retirement income certified professional, and a certified plan fiduciary advisor with RBC Wealth Management. For those of you who have tuned in before, welcome back. But for anyone that's listening for the first time, this podcast is designed to help you take control. And we will do that by not only discussing a financial topic that is timely and relevant and hopefully applicable to your own financial plan, but we'll also discuss an important topic that goes beyond your money. In today's fast-moving investment world, we are inundated with trendy buzzwords or investment concepts or strategies that seem to capture the attention of everyone all at once. And then a lot of times they quickly fizzle out or, or lose their luster almost just as fast. It's not often that one of these trendy buzzworthy concepts actually sticks around and becomes more integrated into the way we do business. But when that happens, it's important to understand why. One such example of this is sustainable investing, or also known as the ESG movement. Now, ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance, and it refers to the three central factors in measuring the sustainability and the societal impact of a company or a business. These factors were not always considered when, when evaluating a company as a possible investment, but it's become a critical component that warrants discussion. ESG investing has become really a central theme across the investment community. And, and, and the events that we saw in 2020 served as a tailwind and accelerated related trends that broadly drove strong performance and investor interest. And, and asset managers are, are now making headlines with their ESG commitments and their ESG strategies. And, and those ESG strategies are topping the fund launch tables and are certainly head and in, in, in front and head with financial regulators considering ESG to be a top priority. And so what we need to figure out is what is the fuss all about? And in order to help us figure out exactly what ESG is and why it's relevant and, and why it's here to stay, I've invited RBC's ESG guru, we'll call him, Kent McClanahan to the show. Kent is the vice president of responsible investing for all of RBC wealth management's business globally. Kent's primary role is overseeing the firm's strategy around integrating responsible investing and ESG data into everything we do at the firm. He helps coordinate the efforts of RBC's investment teams around ESG integration, working with advisors like myself who want to bring this type of investing into their business and into their practice. And he also talks to clients who want to learn more about integrating their values into their portfolio decisions. Kent holds an MBA from Keenan Flagler Business School from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He received a bachelor's degree in business and history from Concordia College. He holds the Chartered Financial Analyst designation and is a member of the CFA Institute and the CFA Society of Minnesota. So Kent, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for joining us. So Kent, we're just going to dive right in here. Okay. And ESG, again, it's a buzzword, but let's just first start kind of with a definition. So if I may, what is ESG? 
Sure. And I think that's a great spot to start because I think the terminology in this space can be incredibly confusing and often it can be interchangeably used and maybe even used incorrectly when trying to use these terms. So RBC has taken our approach at trying to define what ESG stands for. As you said in the intro, ESG stands for environmental, social and governance applications to an investment portfolio. So we'll take it even a step further and RBC defines the space as responsible investing. And what that is, is any strategy that intentionally considers ESG factors in its investment decision-making process. So that's a pretty wide definition. And we think there's kind of three subsectors within there that we can really define because it's what you're trying to do with that environmental, social and governance data that actually drives how you invest the portfolios. So that's how we've kind of tried to bucket it is into these three different actual what you're trying to do with a portfolio. The first one we call SRI or socially responsible investing. And this is where you intentionally try and remove or include something based on its environmental, social and governance factors. It's a pretty black and white application. This can be negatively screening out alcohol, tobacco, firearms, traditional sin stocks, but it also can be positively including things like green energy, water investing, you know, more socially conscious things like gender equality. Those are the kind of things that you can positively include. It's a black and white application. Either a company has what you're looking for or they don't. ESG integration. This is more looking for the material factors. And what I mean when I say material factors, it's what's important to a different company, right? Like what's important to an industrial company isn't as important to a tech company. A healthcare company cares about things differently than a food company, right? So sure. what's important to those companies, those are the environmental, social, and governance factors that are important. And then you look at them relative to their peers and see which companies are doing better than either their history or their peers and which ones are considering those risks in their capital allocation decisions. So that's the third type. And then the fourth one, third one is impact measure. And this is looking for a measurable environmental or social factor where you're trying to see improvement versus either the history of the company or versus the, the benchmark, right? Like they're trying to look for either lowering greenhouse gas emissions or low income housing creation or things along those lines where you're actually looking for a measurable E or S change. So that's kind of long-winded way to give the definition, but I think it's really important to talk terminology at the start of these kind of conversations. Oh, absolutely. And, and that definitely helps because it, it helps kind of paint the picture of where we're going to go and how this conversation is going to un unfold. Now, when you talk about these things as measurable, okay, mm -hmm. when, I, when I'm picking an investment for a client, when I'm looking at uh, a mutual fund or, or an equity, uh, for example, I tend to go to either our system, our screens, or even Morningstar, right? Which is accessible mm -hmm. to the general public. And I'm looking at what I consider measurable factors, whether it's for a, a stock or a company or, or even a mutual fund. And I'm looking at things like, I don't know, yield, alpha, yeah. beta, cost, right? I'm looking at things that are, are significantly measurable, things that are out there, they're public information. When you're talking about things that you just mentioned, when environmental concerns, their, their social agenda, whether it's mm -hmm. for a company or, or a portfolio, I can't imagine these things are actually quantifiably measured. Sure. Where do you get that information? 
Sure. So it comes from a bunch of different ways, and it's actually becoming more measurable as more and more companies are starting to report on this. So there, there. I mean, there's there's been corporate sustainability reports or CSR reports for years. A lot of times, the data in those is unstandardized, or it's not really, you know, it, it's only it's cherry picked, right? Like they put in there the information mm -hmm. that makes them look good versus the information that doesn't. Sure. The good news is, is we're starting to see demand from investors for this information, especially institutional investors, that's where the demand really started was with large pools of money, like pensions, endowments, foundations, especially around the globe. But it's in the US, it's been for over the last few years, we've seen significant pensions and endowments really starting to demand this information. So that's really driven companies to start issuing ESG reports. So that's where we've actually started seeing reports that actually report out what's material. The hard part is there hadn't been a definition for what is material. We've started now seeing asset managers, BlackRock, Larry Fink wrote a letter uh, a while back, kind of talking about how he wants to have companies really driving ESG factors into before they invest in them. Not saying that they're right or wrong, but he, he put it out there kind of saying that they need to start doing it better. And this is using a framework called the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board or SASB. So they've started now report being a standard for reporting sustainability data. So long-winded answer of kind of saying there's a, a more or less a flow of demand from investors Asset managers now saying, okay, investors care about it. So we're going to push it down to companies. Companies are now starting to report it. And then there are data providers that are looking at ESG data and put, pulling it all together. There are a number of them out there that are pulling this information. It's, it's become so that there are a ton of them. So that's kind of where you can go to find this information, either from the Sustainalytics or MSCI are probably the two biggest ones that are out there doing it. And actually they've made it so you can look up most of the companies for free on their websites and get an ESG score. This isn't exactly giving you the data that you're talking about, but it'll give you a score that they've gone through and looked at what the material factors are for a company and then assigning it a score relative to their peers. So that's okay. So, so it is quantif quantifiable to a certain yeah. regard and it's, it's becoming more and more so. And, and, these 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 sites that you're referring to these these statistical where, where you're grabbing the information these are available to the to the retail yeah. investor. Yeah, if you just Google Sustainalytics ESG scores or MSCI ESG scores, it'll pull up a site that you can enter in a ticker, and it'll give you what the ESG score is, and you can compare it relative to their peers. It'll kind of give it a peer ranking, right? Like so, if you pull up one company versus another, like say one of the major auto manufacturers, you put in a ticker, it'll compare it relative to its peers. So that's one way where you can kind of get an idea of what a name looks like according to that ESG data provider. Excellent. And, and I do know that some of the big publicly available sites, Morningstar, MarketWatch, mm -hmm. they're also starting to, to show some sort of ESG quantifiable information on their websites. And so I, I think, as I mentioned at the intro, this is not just a buzzword that's going to come and go. This is something that is yeah. really saturating the market. And it's becoming one of those factors, just like yield, right? Just like totally. alpha, just like beta, that, that is really going to be a, a major factor when people are going to pick securities. Right. Uh, well, it, it, it's becoming it informs all of those, right? Like ESG risk is pervasive, right? Like the, what is important in running a, a company, environmental factors, you can't ignore them as you're making capital allocation decisions. So that flows through to cash flow, 
It helps you make dividend decisions. It helps you as you are going to access the debt markets. All of these things, if you're not considering them, they all have ESG risk. It's whether or not they consider it and how they actually address it in their capital allocation decisions. So, I mean, we can we can go down that path, but that's that's definitely they're not separate issues. They they're definitely part and parcel of a company's management decisions. Yeah, let, let's actually let's go down that path. I mean, ESG when we're talking about environmental concerns, we're we're talking about. Yeah how a company, for example, handles their waste management or how are they affecting the climate or, or are they using up natural resources, that sort of thing. And, and I guess to your point, while that individual concept or statistic might not be relevant, it's all intertwined into mm-hmm. how that company invests and performs and how they do, which obviously affects the, the top line, the bottom line and the stock price. And so let's go down that rabbit hole a little bit. Let's talk about some of the environmental concerns and the social issues and, you know, the government's governance topics that are, that are relevant and and how they play into an ESG score, so to speak. Yeah. So one of the things I kind of was hinting at there is that every single company, no matter what business they're in, has some sort of environmental, social, or governance risk. And it's how well they manage those risks that helps them avoid what we call controversies, right? Like, because controversies are what really impact the value of the company. These are things like lawsuits, oil spills, pollution, tainted food, recalls, data breaches, stuff like that really impacts the value of a company. If you have something like that, think about what's gone on in the news over the last few years. I mean, I'm sure everyone listening to this can immediately think of a controversy and think about what it's done to the reputation of the company, what it's done to the future cash flows of the company, how many customers have either protested or left the company. Yep. And the stock are, price and the stock yeah, price, right? Totally, you know, ultimately yeah. how it affects the stock. Absolutely. I mean, controversies are probably the biggest thing that ESG is trying to identify. It's trying to identify the future probability of a controversy occurring. That's in general what these ESG scores are trying to quantify is how likely is a, is a, a controversy going to happen in the future. There was a study that was done just last year by a, a group out there that found that 90% of the value of the S&P 500, one of the largest stock market indexes out there, is made up of what's called intangible assets. These are things like patents, trademarks, the quality of the employees they have, but the biggest piece of intangible assets is a brand. Like mm. some most companies, their most valuable thing is a brand. So if you have a controversy, think of what it does to that brand, and it actually can impact the long-term value of a company. And then that makes it so that their earnings go down, future profits, the amount of money they'll have to spend in order to clean up the controversy. I mean, these are all the kind of things that, that weren't largely considered in the past, but I mean, that's, that's why we had so many controversies and we still do, but it's largely as companies haven't actually cleaned up their ESG risks. And, and I would think now with ESG becoming so front and center and part of the analytical process with, with investing, this is becoming a, a major, major issue within the companies themselves, the, the mm-hmm. CEOs and the CFOs and, the, and the, everyone else that's in charge of running a company, they have to be aware of, of the ESG risks. Are, are they starting to manage the companies differently because of the interest in this ESG world? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've seen it in capital allocation decisions as companies are, it used to be, forget the environment, right? Like, let's just do what's the lowest cost 
thing. It's more, okay, what does this actually look like? I mean, we've seen how many starting to try and make what are called net zero commitments, right? Like how many companies out there are making that. What they're trying to say is by the year 2050, they're going to have net zero emissions, right? Like it's largely, again, pressure from governments, pressure from um, investors and pressure from clients that are driving all of this. But if it's important to your clients, it, it better be important to the CEO. So, I mean, if you're making these kind of commitments, it goes to the highest level of the company. And it, it really kind of changes the activities. It changes how you spend money on building a new, a new building, right? Like if you have, if you're making a net zero, you think of the average life uh, cycle of a building being 30 years, 30 years from now, your net zero commitment is you, your company is going to be net zero. So if you're building a building today, you better be thinking about how it can actually live long and uh, be part of that net zero solution. So it, it informs pretty much everything about a company does. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Now, you know, I mentioned earlier, some of the other uh, quantifiable things that I look at when, when traditionally, fundamentally, when we're looking mm-hmm. at evaluating a stock or earnings and profits and, and the debt that's on the books and the yield and, and those sort of things. These ESG concerns, these, these other factors, where do you think they fit in? Are, are they just as important? Are they more important? I mean, where, where, would, you, uh, where would you put these in that rank of, of considerations when you're evaluating a company? I think it's kind of almost become a third leg of building a portfolio, right? Like, because we almost always talk about risk and return, right? Like those are kind of the two primary things when you're building a portfolio and now it's environmental concerns, right? Like it's, it's ESG, it's right alongside of it. So I think it's an equal thing. And one of the things that we saw is that there actually was talking a little bit about debt. I I mean, I I feel like I keep coming back to like it all in, in, it's all intertwined, but debt, there was a study done by a major ESG data provider that showed that companies with lower ESG risk scores have a lower cost of capital just because they have, they're shown to be better run companies. They have lower risk. And whenever you're getting debt, it's almost all about risk, right? So that's sure. what ends up pricing the debt. So it, it, it's contra- fu- the likelihood of future controversy, lower ESG scores means you're less likely to have controversy, which means you're more likely to pay back the debt. So it's just the cost of capital for companies are lower if they're considering ESG risk. So it's all intertwined, right? Like I, I think it, it, it's at least as important, if not more important in going forward on a lot of these things. But I mean, it all, it all goes together. It's the, there's often talk of the, what's the ESG factor. You know, it, it isn't really a factor. It just, it, it kind of informs every factor that's out there. And if the way you just described it, it, it's intuitive. Right. If a mm-hmm. company is is responsible with regards to the social uh, dynamic within the company and and the human capital and and their values right. and, and how they handle society and and to your point, it, this is stuff that has been around forever, and and really does come into play with how a company does and how they invest and how they perform. It's just now over the last couple of years, really, it's 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 been labeled as ESG. Mm-hmm. And so it's been involved in the investment making process. It's just now this has become noteworthy and it's something that people are defining and addressing and talking about. So the way you just described it really clicked for me. This is intuitive stuff. This is, these are things that good companies should and ought to be and, and probably are doing. And if you're not, 
then something's probably up, right? Whether it's a controversy yeah. or, or performance or, or what have you. It's a great way of thinking about it. It's been around forever, but it's really just kind of come mainstream over the last couple of years. When, when did it really become relevant and, and mainstream, specifically the ESG yeah. movement, we'll call it? So it's been building pretty much since the 70s. There was a group of nuns back in, I think it was the late 70s, that really wanted to try and fight apartheid in mm. South Africa. So they kind of went through their portfolios and looked at companies that were selling into South Africa and profiting from apartheid. So they went through and said, all right, we don't want to be involved in those companies anymore. So they started out there by removing a few major names from their portfolio that were selling over there. So that kind of was the initial first institutional asset group that really said, you know, we're going to change the way things are done. So it, it's kind of been snowballing since then. And in 2000, I think it was the mid 2000s, there was a group called the Principles for Responsible Investing that formed the PRI. It's now one of the largest institutions in the world. It, it, it's looking at creating what they call the six principles of responsible investing. And it's really focused on trying to integrate ESG factors into investing and then engaging with the companies in order to try and focus on what's important there. So that's kind of when it really pitched the, the term ESG. But I would say it really became mainstream probably about two years ago. And 2020 really had it with all of the, the pandemic, with the, the social issues that we saw in the United States, it really got people thinking about what companies are doing. And it really took off. The, the biggest example I'll give is we've talked a little bit about Morningstar. They've started doing a fund flows quarterly report and they do an annual summary as well. And they looked at the amount of flows that went into retail mutual funds and ETFs last year. And it was $51 billion flowed into what they define as sustainable uh, or responsible investing solutions last year, kind of using that broad definition I gave at the beginning. And just a few years before, it was only about $4 billion. It was two wow. years before, it was $4.5 billion. To give a little example of how much money that actually is, two years ago, it was less than 1% of all flows into mutual funds and ETFs. So it was a small little piece. Last year, it was 24% of all flows into mutual funds and ETFs. So it, it, was, it was a significant change from even just two years beforehand, just because the interest in this space has really become kind of mainstream over the last couple of years. And that's not, that's not just coincidence. That's not just a, a random statistic. That, that is because these investors, whether it's retail or institutional, they're making conscious decisions to invest in, in ESG companies. I mean, I could tell you just firsthand, the amount of emails that I get on a daily basis is, is ridiculous, number one. But the amount of emails that I'm now getting over the last year or so that reference ESG have have just skyrocketed. I mean, if for every five emails I get, I, I bet one of them has ESG in it. And, and it's, it's real, it's here. And it's, I think for the better, let's, let's go down, down, down that path, Kemp. You know, when ESG first came to the mainstream and it was at that time, it was is buzz, right? It was that new buzzword. Yeah. It was the sexy type of thing that people were talking about. And in a lot of, I'll call it the institutional or the old school type of investors or, or brokers or, or whatever, looked at it and kind of like, just that'll, that'll come and go, right? That's useless. Yep. Like that's not important information. I'm, I'm interested in other things. And, and as a result, they figured that ESG 
if you're going to focus on that, and if you're going to create portfolios around this, this buzzword that it actually would equate to underperformance. Mm-hmm. And we have seen that that might not be the case. Can, can you right. talk to ESG scores and how performance has been affected? Yeah. So there's been a number of different types of ways to look at this because to your point, it's it's something that everybody's trying to talk about, trying to understand. And it, it's hard to, as, as I kind of have said a few times, it's hard to parse out and kind of isolate what is the ESG factor. So everybody's trying to take a look at it. The one, there was one study done by a pretty major Wall Street firm that looked, I think is probably the most comprehensive look at this space. And it, it looked at a long time period. One of, the, one of the reasons I like it so much is it looked at a 15 year time period, which there aren't a lot of studies that go that far back because this space is so new, but they really put in the work and they tried to isolate asset managers that had a sustainability theme within their investment portfolio and those that didn't. So they kind of created more or less two peer groups, but they were able to find names in every single asset class from fixed income, large cap, small cap, mid cap, international, all of these different things, even alternatives. And they isolated all of these different things and compared the returns of the sustainable products to the traditional products. And they found almost zero difference in returns between the two and they, they said it was inconclusive, but they said you were not giving up returns in order to go sustainable. What they did find and what was interesting was over the longer period of time in down markets, you only captured 80% of the down market that traditional funds did. Wow. So it, it was it was pretty substantial. I mean, obviously this is long-term, so it smooths it out and you're over shorter periods of time may have different return pr- uh, profiles but it's all short-term vol versus long-term. And that's why I liked this study is because we're all long, we all try to be long-term investors where we put something in there and hopefully follow a strategy, follow a plan and trying to get to the end result. And if you do that and integrate ESG factors into your portfolio, it's shown that it it doesn't hurt returns at all. So I thought that was a really interesting study. Without a doubt. And and you kind of hit the nail on the head with what I look for, for a lot of my clients and the portfolios that I'm managing is, is downside protection. I know mm-hmm. that I, I've talked about this on, on past podcasts. My goal as a, as a financial advisor for my clients is not necessarily to beat the market year after year, because that's extremely hard to do, mm-hmm. right? And, and instead, my goal is to lose less when the market's right. going down by the screens and, and the analysis that I'm putting into place, and, 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 and which ultimately leads to the selection of the investments. And so if I can find an investment whether it's a stock or a company or, or a mutual fund with a, with a good ESG score, which would ultimately long-term equate to potentially less downside, that could be a major factor in how I'm selecting those investments. Right. That's great. Well, it all kind of makes sense if we go back to that, the cost of capital study, it all kind of leans towards quality, right? Like it, it's just companies making good investment decisions with their capital. They're avoiding controversy. So if they avoid controversies, there's less likely of the company having a controversy and those controversies impact value. So they see significant downturns, right? Like if you think, like kind of thinking back to what we were talking about earlier, if you think of controversies over the last few years, right? Those have had significant impacts on the downside of the stock price of all of those different firms. So it, it makes sense when you actually think about it intuitively, but it, it was, it, that study really did a good job of putting it in, in a pretty plain picture. Sure. Can you give a few examples, ESG, Mm -hmm. environmental, social, and governance? Can you give a few examples, factors within each of those categories that are, that are, that 
or tend to focus on? Yeah, it's it's it, this is a this is a part I like doing because I think a lot of people are like, well, this sounds great, but what does it actually mean, right? Like, sure. I think the the key thing is to think about materiality because again, as I said at this outset. What's important to a tech company isn't important to a materials company isn't important to a healthcare company, right? So it's what's important to each of those different types of companies. So that's where I really like to drill into some examples of what different types of companies is actually material to them. So one example I use for an environmental one, almost everybody thinks about climate change being the big thing within environmental, but that's not the only environmental factor. There's a lot of different things that you can think about when you talk about environment. One example okay. I use is kind of an aluminum can maker, right? Like almost everybody knows the large aluminum can makers because they're all drinking either pop or beer or something out of an aluminum can. So this one was a holding in a lot of different ESG portfolios, largely because they were the largest aluminum recycler on the planet. Aluminum is recycled 55% of the time, whereas plastic bottles are only recycled 8% of the time. That's why you see these big plastic islands floating out in the ocean is because mm -hmm. plastic just doesn't end up getting into a recycling plant as often as aluminum does. We have a pretty good system for that. And this is this firm is the largest recycler and largest buyer of aluminum. Mm -hmm. Secondarily, they were able to spend a lot of money on research and development. So they were actually able to reduce the amount of aluminum that went into their can versus their peers. So it's 35% less aluminum, but the same strength within their aluminum can. You don't really think about these kind of things when you think about an aluminum can, but they did. And there's, they're using less, so they're having to pull less aluminum out of the ground, but it also lowers their cost. And if the sure. cost of aluminum goes up, their cost of aluminum is only 35% less than their peers. And then finally, the benefit to their customers, right? Like think about gas usage in the trucks to haul something from point A to point B. Aluminum is significantly lighter than glass. I don't know if you've drank from a beer bottle lately, but sure, it's largely sure. transitioning to aluminum, right? Yep. Because it costs a lot less money for those beer manufacturers to transport aluminum cans. So they're able to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of their customers, which is a benefit to them as well as people start looking at greenhouse gas emissions tied to a supply chain. And they're definitely part of that supply chain. So there's an environmental example. That's, That's a great one. Yep. That helps yeah. you really see it's not just about all right solar companies or, or wind companies mm -hmm. it, it dives so much deeper in how all of these little factors ultimately end up uh, affecting the bottom line that's awesome absolutely i can go social example too please one other yeah one other one is uh, I, I like to use two big box retailers both are club style I'm going to name names, but I'm guessing you can guess who they are. So you, one of them did a big study when they got started and looked at how they pay their employees. They found that their competitor was having turnover every 18 months. What that means is they had to replace their employees every 18 months. And it was costing them one and a half times that employee's salary in order to replace them. So they're replacing their people every 18 months because they aren't paying them very much. So they're paying them a low salary. They found that if they just increased the salary of those employees to that one and a half times, the turnover on those employees went down to went up to five years. So they actually were able to keep an employee around for five years just by paying them one and a half times the salary of the employee at the other big box retailer. So it's costing them significantly less to replace those employees. It's often counterintuitive because almost everybody thinks, oh, we just pay the employees less. It'll lower my employee, employee cost. In fact, if you actually pay them a little bit more, they stick around, it costs you less. Hmm. There was additional benefits of those employees because they were there for so much longer, they were happier, 
They were better trained. They knew where things were in the store better. So they were able to help their customers better. You were able to have less employees on the floor because they were better trained, knew where things were, and were better able to help customers. And you had happier customers leaving the door. So they came back. So there was additional benefits there just by paying somebody a little bit more as opposed to trying to be cheap and just uh, treating them not the greatest. So there's a big social impact as well. Wow. That's a, another great eye-opening case study, so to speak, that, that shows you how these little social factors really end up affecting the share price ultimately. What about governance? Sure. Give an example of that one. So governance is often the, the scandal side of things, right? Like it's often Mm. where scandals get started. There was one with a major auto manufacturer a few years back that I'm sure we all can remember. So it was largely thought of as an environmental one because there was kind of, there's some cheating going on. There was some emission data that was fudged. It often comes out as an environmental thing, but it actually started as a governance issue. The, The board of directors was almost all made up of one family, which owned the majority of the shares of the firm. They were owned the president and the CEO of the firm were all from the same family. So there was no real controls over the governance of the firm. So no one was really there independently to kind of say, you know what, we probably shouldn't cheat on these things. They had a long history of bribery, corruption, other scandals out there as well that, that really were, it was known. Like this firm was not well, they weren't well run. They were, they were kind of cheating. They were bribing. They had been hit a number of times. So anyone that was really paying attention would have kind of seen this emissions scandal come, right? So that it was definitely something that was well known in the ESG industry and very few people actually held this firm. And when it actually happened, a lot of people in Wall Street were like, oh my God, who could have seen this coming? Anyone that was paying attention to the governance side of things would have seen it coming from a mile away. So it's just, it's, it's often pretty well known or easy to spot if there isn't independence on the board, diversity of the board. These kind of things can can be pretty easily spotted. That's awesome. Another great example that really drives this home that this is these are key factors that that need to be considered and that are being considered more and more and more, whether it's on the retail side or on the institutional side. This is this is not a buzzword, right? This is not going away. And investors, you know, not only do they want their money to grow, right? But they, they want their money to contribute to a, to a higher goal than just the bottom line. And, and they're demanding right. that companies take a, a much more kind of a, a holistic view of their business, much more so than they have in the past. And so this is being demanded by consumers, by investors, by institutional investors, really from the bottom up. And it's, and it's changing the way the companies do business. I think it's great. Totally. I mean, it, it just, it, it, pairs so well with like everything else we've seen in trends out there. It's whether you care where your stuff came from, right? Like if you're buying a pair of pants, you care where those pants came from, who made them, what dyes went into them. How is it any different than your investment portfolio, right? You kind of want to consider maybe you're out there buying a hybrid or you're thinking about putting solar on your house or you want to buy organic, right? Like all of these kind of things, it's the, the investment portfolio feels like the one place where people really haven't thought about, wait a minute, what's in my investment portfolio? I want to know sure. what's in my salad just as much as I want to know what's in my investment portfolio. So it's definitely kind of the future, I think. We, in fact, we did a, a client survey just a few months back that, that pulled RBC clients and it asked, do you see ESG investing as the way of the future? And we had 65% of our clients say yes. 
right? Like, yeah. and if, especially female clients, it was 75%. So it, it's really clients think it's the way of the future. It's important. It's, it's not going away. Kent, I think we're going to end it there. What, uh, what a great way to wrap it up that, that you just hit the nail on the head. This is something that is real. It's tangible. It's becoming now quantifiable and it's, and it's not going away. We've been talking with, with Kent McClanahan. He's again, he's the vice president of responsible investing for all of RBC wealth management's uh, business globally. Kent, I, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing some of this insight with us. Great to be here, Michael. And we'll hopefully do it again. Absolutely. So for the listeners out there, remember ESG, it's important. It, it's, it's, a, it's a critical factor that we are now considering on a daily basis when it comes to evaluating an investment or, or, or a strategy or portfolio. And there are, there are other factors, right? More, more traditional factors. And there are a lot of different products and investments and strategies that are out there that it's, that it's simply in your best interest to engage with someone that knows what they're doing and, and, and with a financial advisor before, before trying to do it on your own. So that said, if you or a loved one are in need of some help or some guidance with regards to your own personal wealth plan, or if you're simply interested in learning more about my practice, go ahead and reach out by calling 724-933-4446, or you can email me at michael.dukovic at rbc.com, and that's D-U-K-O-V-I-C-H, or you can simply visit my website at michaeldukovic.com. Now, listen, I am looking to work with people who value the plan, people that recognize that life's greatest returns are only realized when you invest beyond your money. So remember, it's your money, it's your life. Take control. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Your Money podcast with financial advisor, Mike Dukovic. Make sure you click the subscribe button now so you will be notified when new podcasts are released. If you want to know more about working with Mike, please call 724-933-4446 or visit michaeldukovic.com. It's your money. It's your life. Take control. The studies discussed in this podcast were the Intangible Asset Market Value Study done by Ocean Tomo in 2020 the MSCI study on cost of capital from 2018, and the Sustainable Reality Report done by Morgan Stanley in 2019, covering the years between 2004 and 2018. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of RBC Wealth Management. All opinions and estimates constitute the speaker's judgment as of the date of this recording and are subject to change without notice and are provided in good faith but without legal responsibility. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial services provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. RBC Wealth Management does not provide tax or legal advice. All decisions regarding the tax or legal implications of your investment should be made in connection with your independent tax or legal advisor. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. It is not possible to invest directly in an index. Investment and insurance products offered through RBC Wealth Management are not insured by the FDIC or any other federal government agency, are not deposits or other obligations of or guaranteed by a bank or any bank affiliate, and are subject to investment risks, including the possible loss of the principal amount invested. RBC Wealth Management is a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC, member NYSE, FINRA, and SIPC.